Hello, everybody. This is the Blind Broadcaster Podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. On this week's episode, longtime TV voice and current radio voice since 1997-98 of the Memphis Tigers football and men's basketball team, Dave Volosian, joined me on the pod this week. And if you like what you hear on this episode and you want to hear more interviews like this, please, on your favorite podcast directory or server, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Is this really you're finishing up 23rd year on the radio side? Uh, that's I, I, you know what? I'm never sure uh, exactly how long radio. Just put it like this. Since 1986, I've done the University of Memphis games either on TV or radio. So for a long, long time. And when you're that old. <laughs> yeah, go figure. It adds up. You know, really get used to all the new technology. So without your friend and you walking me through this, never would have figured out Zoom app and and get on this thing. Definitely. So what was the broadcasts and equipment like when you were doing TV? Because I know a lot of people go from TV and then transition to radio, and it's a much harder transition for a lot of folks. But it seemed like you made it flawlessly. Well... Are you talking equipment-wise or just the the way you do the games? Because uh, the style Both. for TV and radio is is certainly different. You you uh, let the pictures tell the story and you enhance them on TV. On radio, of course, you have to paint the picture for everybody who's listening. So for you, who gave you your first start? My first start, well, actually, if you want to go way back, 1971, I started for a little student radio station in Carbondale, Illinois, at Southern Illinois University. My first professional gig was in 1975 when I did high school football and basketball play-by-play in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. So my first real gig was uh, in a little town, a resort town in Colorado, where I went to be a ski bum and uh, I had left school. I still hadn't graduated. And I walked into a, a radio station and I was just seeing if they needed any kind of work because I'd already done a little bit of stuff uh, in, in college, TV and radio. And um, they asked me if I did play by play. And I said, of course I did. I really hadn't done very much play by play at that point, but I, uh, I said I did. And I said, OK, well, if, if you uh, will go interview the football coach, because we're looking for somebody to do these football games, we sold them. Right. If you uh, if you do a good job with the interview, you can you can uh, probably have the gig. So I said, OK. They gave me a tape recorder. I asked where the uh, football where the school was. I went up there. I interviewed the football coach, came back to the station. I delivered the tapes to them. And I lived in the village by the ski area. And downtown was about, I don't know, 10 minutes away. By the time I got back to my house the my, my roommate said hey you got to call the radio station right away they need to talk to you and i called them of course they said i had the job and the, the rest is history i started doing ball games uh, both basketball and football in steamboat and then i actually became the news and sports director later in the year and how did you get from the high school game to 
a college level? Well, I went back and I, 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 uh, I finished college. And while I was in college, the technology of microwave came into being. So all those live shots that are mm-hmm. on television, yeah. up until the time that um, 1979, right in there, mm-hmm. when you would see people doing uh, reports, they were either taped or you sent them up to the satellite and down like networks would do for ball games. Right. And when microwave technology came, you could literally send your signal from a tower to another tower and you could go live with a microwave truck is what they called it. Those big trucks that had the big masts. Now it's even more advanced, but back then um, they developed this technology. And so they'd opened up a bureau in Carbondale and I was while in school, I was working for the PBS station because the PBS television station was actually the student station. Mm-hmm. And so I was doing the five o'clock news and they saw me and they asked me if I would be interested in becoming a weekend sports anchor for them, which I did. And I would go back and forth. They had this bureau in Carbondale, but I would drive to Cape Girardeau on the weekend. So I became sort of a, a part-time employee with a lot of hours while I was still in school. And so I was, I was juggling doing an FM radio station in the morning sports, going to class, working for the TV station, uh, the PBS station there a couple of times a week. And then I was doing this other gig for the CBS station in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, sometimes in Carbondale, but on the weekends in Cape. And then when I graduated in 1980, they hired me full time. And really that's how I got into the business. And in 1981, I moved to Memphis uh, and then got the opportunity to start doing ball games and, um, and, a, and a radio talk show. And I preferred that over being a sports anchor. And the rest is history. That's what I've been really basically doing since 1983. So I think you took a detour to do some Texas A&M work, I think. Or? I did. 1985 to 86, uh, I had the opportunity to work for an incredible radio station in Dallas. Mm-hmm which uh, is KRLD. It's an all news station and, and heavily uh, also sports. And they were the, they, they were the station that carried forever the Dallas Cowboys. Mm-hmm. So um, I worked for a year as the morning guy for KRLD. And part of that deal was you got to do Texas A&M basketball games. So from the 85, 86 season, I, I did the Texas A&M basketball games on radio. Were you the PXP guy, or were you the color analyst with the legendary Dave South? He's retiring from baseball. No, no. Uh, uh, Dave South was was the play-by-play guy, and I'm not sure if I replaced him or he followed me. But there was one year that uh, they they wanted to be on in K uh, in Dallas. They wanted to be on KRLD. So the deal was, if you were going to be on KRLD, you had to use their announcer. And since that was actually part of the reason I left, because I knew that was part of the deal. And so uh, I moved to be able to do that. And then I moved back to Memphis uh, in, in 86 because I had opportunities to be more involved with the University of Memphis. So when did the ESPN deal come about for you? The ESPN deal came about in the early 90s. Um, and now, that's was a this, great story. Was this uh, while you were doing uh, 
football while and I'm basketball? Doing, right. While I'm doing the Memphis package. Now, you got to realize the Memphis package in those days, because not all the games were on ESPN. You, yeah. know, you were lucky if you got two or three games a year mm-hmm. on ESPN. You had to be a top 25 team to get that, really. Yeah. So um, I was doing the local TV package. And um, John Saunders, if you remember John, one of the original ESPN guys, mm-hmm. he had come into town to do a top 25 matchup between Memphis and Arkansas. Right. And he was doing the game with Jim Valvano, the great Jim Valvano. And both of them have since passed on now. Yeah, uh, actually both. He and Saunders have passed on. Mm-hmm. But uh, John developed laryngitis. So they called me up and said, hey, uh, we know you do the games locally. We've looked at your tapes. Would you be willing, if John can't do the game, would you be willing to do it? I said, sure. I'll prepare for the game as if I'm going to do it either way. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay, that's great. And then about 10 o'clock in the morning, uh, and it was an afternoon game, I want to say it was about 3, they called me up and they said, hey, John can't go. Are you ready? And I said, yeah. And I went in there and um, – I, I will tell you, it's a funny story. That uh, a guy named Ed Placic was the producer of that game. He now, was who, very nervous about using me. He had no idea if I could handle it or whatever it might be. Okay. And so we have a meeting in the Tigers locker room. Oh it's boy! Myself and the whole production crew from the ESPN and Jim right. Elon. Okay. Now, what he didn't know was in those days, those local broadcasts we had had so many different elements. Because they had everything sponsored. They were making a ton of money off these broadcasts. Right, exactly, and, like they still do now. Sure. And so <laughs> I I mean the ESPN broadcast was a walk in the park compared to all the stuff that we used to have to do on the local broadcasts. <laughs> wow. So Ed is making he's so nervous and he's making this so hard. And finally the meeting breaks up and we start walking out. And Valvano puts his arm over my shoulder and he says, Hey kid you know these teams better than I do. You lead, I'll follow. Don't worry about what anything he said. And that just (laughs) gave me a whole bunch of confidence. It was a great broadcast, and I started my ESPN career based on that. And how long did you work with ESPN? Huh? How long did you do the ESPN games until? I I did, uh, over the years, probably about a five-year period, I I, I probably did, uh, I would say to you, uh, at least 200 different events in a lot of different sports. I, I did so. I did racquetball. I did, uh, to this day, I'm the only person that ever did network live billiards from Las Vegas. Okay. I did the, uh, I did the wrestling championships, the NCAA wrestling championships. I, I, I did hand, handball, racquetball. I did <laughs> so many different types of events for them. And it was it was really a lot of fun for me. What was the billiards experience like on TV? Because it sounds like it's a poker game, a little different. Because I've listened to Lon Chad and a few of the other guys yeah. that do poker. But what was that like? And how much of that experience did you carry when you went back to doing Memphis full time? I, I don't know that there was a lot from that. But I, I tell you what I did learn was a lot about prep. Because I really knew very little about billiards. Actually, I had done a pilot, the, the, the famous Miucci pool cues used to be made outside of Memphis in a little suburb in Mississippi called Olive Branch. Really? 
Yeah. And wow. th- this is where Bob Meucci's pool empire began. Holy cow. And uh, so Bob Meucci had a guy named Jim Rempe and um, a- a- another female star, Lori, uh, Lori Johns, I think is her name. And uh, they, so I was sort of the host and they did this pool pilot that never got sold. This high end production company came in. We shot this at this Q manufacturing company in Olive Branch, Mississippi. I don't even know how many years ago. So that's the only thing I really knew about pool. And uh, the next thing I know, because I'm doing all these things for ESPN, I don't know if they'd heard about this or if my agent pushed it, but they said, hey, we would like for you to try this. We're going to do live pool. So I said, you know, I'm game. Uh, They were paying pretty good money. And so (laughs) I went and I was working with this guy and his name escaped me, but he was considered the Jack Nicholas of billiards, a pool. Mm. And he was my analyst and I did almost, so I got there early and we weren't taping the early rounds. So I probably literally stayed up about 24 hours straight, just prepping, just learning everything about the game, learning everything about these guys. And I had a really good analyst and I, I thought they were really good shows. Now, they, it's really difficult to do, so I don't think ESPN has ever done live billiards since. But it was a positive experience for me. It taught me a lot about prep. I think most of those are still tape delayed. I think because at one point when they had billiards, I think they would have them mostly on Sundays on like ESPN 2. Well, they condensed it, too. You know, we were literally on for two hours straight live yeah. or longer. And uh, the way they do it now is they, is they condense all the action. And so you see a lot more action than guys studying shots, waiting around. Um, it, 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 is, it is a much uh, easier watch because they condense all the action. Do you still follow that sport much? No, I, I really do not. I'll be honest. <laughs> so, okay. When the ESPN ride ended, you already knew you had to fall back at Memphis doing TV. No, that's not the way. The way it worked was, so you got to realize, uh, I was yeah. really a freelance guy for them. I, mm-hmm. I was not a full uh, contract player. So I did some, some of those guys in those days were getting like 30 events or 40 events. And um, I had not gotten to that point. And, and um the guy that had done the University of Memphis was a dear friend of mine. His name was Paul Hartledge. Oh, I remember that guy. And, I listened Paul, to him a lot. Paul passed away at way too early in age, at, at the age of 42, from esophageal cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and the university both came to me and asked me if I would replace him on the games on radio. And um, I will tell you that I, at that time I had th- two really young kids. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there were about three or four at the time. And I, I, you know, when when you're doing what I was doing, I was doing that local package. But at that time, most of the TV games were not home games. They were away games. Right. And then I was doing all these ESPN games Mm -hmm. or events. And so I was on the road a lot. Right. So um, I started going, you know what? If I do the Tiger games, I know I'll have uh, about 40 events a year. And half of those or more will be home games. So I got to spend more time with my kids. And I thought I would still get some ESPN work, but because I was a freelance guy and not a contract player, Mm -hmm. the days they needed me were Wednesdays and Saturdays. And in those days, most of college basketball 
took place on Wednesdays and Saturdays. So they had all their contract players for those, right. uh, for, for the other days of the week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, whatever other days. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, they're Fridays, Wednesdays, Mondays, Mondays Sundays. Every day, basically every day. In those, in those <laughs> days, there were a few Tuesdays and Thursdays, but yeah. mostly Wednesdays and Saturdays. Well, mm -hmm. I was already booked for Wednesdays and Saturdays with the Tigers, and they had all the contract players for the other days. Yeah. So basically, my freelance sort of dried up because I was not available for the days that they were offering me. And right. so my ESPN career sort of came to an end uh, when I started doing the Tiger basketball games and football games. So we talk about this, you and I do, on the phone about probably, in my opinion, one of the best analysts that you worked with, that Paul worked with, and when John Kotsky, before you took over full time, worked with in football, Bob Rush. Yeah. What was your first interaction with him and how seamless of a transition was it when you were working with him? Did he and the producers allow the games to be for you? Well, I already knew Bob because I was doing TV games, right? Right. <clears throat> uh, so I, I really went to every Tiger football game. Anyway, because I was doing the coach's TV show. Mm -hmm. Which you still do now. Uh, and and, and I, I already had a relationship with, with Bob from going to dinners with him. Um, sometimes I would hang out in the booth uh, if I wasn't doing the game on TV because we only did like three or four per year. Uh, I would still go to all the games and I'd hang out with them in the booth. So I had a great relationship with him. I knew how he worked. I already had a great rapport with humor with him, which I, I think uh, a lot of our broadcasts uh, uh, interjected. And mm -hmm. um, so it was seamless. It was like working with a buddy. And Bob, you know, was, was All-American for right. the University of Memphis. He played mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, for several NFL teams, but, but really his great success was hiking the ball to Dan Fouts and the San Diego Chargers. And they played in the famous Ice Bowl. He had all kinds of great stories. Sure. And um, so he knew the game probably better than any analyst that I've worked with since. And his insight was incredible. And, you know, he no kidding. Games and he, he was, he was, he was terrific and he was funny. And um, the only thing is he would get upset when we would, and we were not a very good football team for the majority of the time he was the analyst. So he would get upset and late in games, sometimes he would get rather quiet because he was, you know, steam was coming out of his ears from all the <laughs> stupid plays that we had. But um, no, he he was clearly the best uh, football analyst I've ever worked with. He was probably one of the ones that when I first listened to Tiger Athletics, I'm like, how does he know how what a play is supposed to work? He's one of those that would tell you why the play worked, why it didn't work, what should have happened. He's just one of those guys that would make it easy for you to understand football. Yeah, he could have been a great coach, but um, uh, he he basically was uh, in um, uh, medical sales and uh, now actually is a gunsmith. Kind of oh, wow. In medical sales and sort of became a gunsmith and he hated travel. He did not <laughs> like getting on airplanes. And in fact, we probably have to have a drink before you get on an airplane. And there was you know, not supposed to be drinking on uh, 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 an airplane filled with uh, college athletes. Sure. So uh, a, a bottom line is that's that's really what caused him to retire from doing the games. He did not want to travel. He hated travel. He hated airplanes. 
Right. And our athletic director at the time, R.C. Johnson, I thought made a mistake when he basically said either our analyst does all the games or none of the games. And when given that choice, Bob said, see ya. And, and unfortunately, that was, I think, a loss to the broadcast. I agree. I mean, that for me, because I remember when you told me that he wasn't doing the games, I'm like, Memphis just made the biggest mistake in their lives. I, I kind of wish they would have had a half and half package where he would do all the home games and whoever you dealt with for the road, you just dealt with them for the road. That's what we should have done. Unfortunately, that's not the way it worked out. And then you dealt, then you had Wayne Whedon on the broadcast. You had Chris Powers yes. on the broadcast. And I, I really liked Wayne quite a bit. Uh, the public did not appear to like Wayne. Wayne had a very country-like voice, and that appeared to bother people for whatever reason. And, and so Wayne, um, Wayne didn't last as long as, as uh, I would have liked, uh, but that's showbiz. And Chris Powers, he's joined from time to time on the road games, and sometimes uh, Chris, Chris he does the sidelines. Chris had the potential to be a great analyst. I, I think Chris would have been uh, another Bob Rush. The, 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 uh, the thing about Chris was Chris is a pilot. And so Chris had been a, uh, a pilot for a, a couple of major airlines, and he'd worked his way up to having a lot of seniority where he could take the time, set his schedule, and uh, was available for all the football games. Yeah. But unfortunately, Chris decided to go and join FedEx. And when he joined FedEx, he did not have any seniority. And so he could not arrange a schedule. So he had to leave the games to build up seniority at FedEx, which he probably now has. Probably. But um, you know, now- it's too late. He, he had to give it up. And now currently you have Jarvis Greer who's joining yeah. the broadcast who does some TV work, but mostly his mostly Saturdays are free. And so far in what three years working with him, I guess mm-hmm. y'all have a pretty good, great. pretty good chemistry. Like what? What do you? What does Jarvo bring to the broadcast that maybe the Powers and Whedon didn't bring? And do you think he has the potential to be the next Bob Rush for this broadcast? Well, but Jarvis's style is a little different. You're not yeah, getting a lot of X's and O's from. No, from uh, you're not uh, getting that. What you are getting is enthusiasm and friendliness, and um, you know he he's the guy who loves the team, and you know he does the prep with me. We go talk to the coaches, so he's yep, got yep. some insight from them. But um, Jarvis is a guy who's a great communicator, and I, I I've always thought that's one of his strengths. People love Jarvis. I think he's the number one uh, voted sportscaster on television in Memphis. He's been doing it for 30 years. So he's well-known, well-liked, and uh, we do have a very friendly, and I think, uh, rapport that people appreciate. And and I do think they like the broadcast. Let's quickly switch to baskets you've had. Let me see. In my years of listening to you on the broadcast, two or three analysts, if I'm right, you had Nate McDowell on radio, and since for a pretty good while, you've had Matt Dillon on the radio side. That's it. I, I, my, I, think it, I think it went from Hank, who had done the games with Paul, to um, Matt. To Matt. I think those are the only two I've had. Now, uh, the, uh, the the decision with Hank was uh, his kids started playing high school basketball. He wanted to watch them play, mm-hmm. so he was going to step aside for a couple of years. He did. Matt filled in, and then when Hank was ready to come back, he actually had an opportunity to do the games with the Grizzlies, and that's that's what he ended up doing. And unfortunately, we had to talk about our, well, 
your closest friend. I didn't get a chance to meet Forrest, but from all the things I read when he passed away, that was like a big hole that still has yet to be filled. Oh, he, he, uh, Forrest Goodman by my count anyway, was the ultimate professional when it comes to being a pre and post guy. <clears throat> First of all, the guy could fill an hour by himself if you needed him to. Sure. And he didn't have any fear of, of, of just trying to fill up that time. And he did it interestingly, had a wonderful voice, had a love for the Tigers. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know how many years we worked together because he did a, a, a radio show with me for at least five years, I would w- say. WMC. On WMC. Yeah. But then we did these games together for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, whatever it was. And unfortunately, he was not healthy for much of that time. He had issues wow. with kidneys. Mm-hmm. And his wife had actually given her one of his kidneys. And what uh, ended up being um, the end for Forrest was after two years of having his wife's kidney um, through a transplant, the, his body started to reject that kidney. And then they had to give him all kinds of other uh, meds to try to make that situation better. And mm-hmm. then other things started to happen. And unfortunately, he passed away last year. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, wow, that was painful. I mean, I never knew him, but it seemed like he was top shelf when it came to game day hosting and news directing and just top notch across the board. Great broadcaster, as good and, as it gets. And for you, before we close this thing down, I've given, I've given and taken up more of your time than expected. But sometimes when you get into a good flow, this is what you get. Um, for you, all the coaches you've dealt with, all the players you've dealt with, who are your favorite coaches you've dealt with in football and basketball, and what have they brought to you as a broadcaster? Well, I can tell you who my two favorite are, and I like them all pretty much. Sure. Um, and, and had a relationship with many. There were some I did not, but most of them I had a, good, a really good relationship. But <clears throat> without a question, my favorite basketball coach is John Calipari. Because everything he did, he made exciting. There was a different level with him. Mm. Uh, everything was first class. We only stayed at great hotels. We only ate great food. <laughs> um, and, and he was always an adventure. And he was the kind of guy that liked to give me grief, but wanted me to give him grief back. So I thought our interviews, our pregame, postgame, our TV shows were really fun because there was going to be an element of give and take and uh, the radio interviews are fantastic. It, 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 it was, it was really terrific. My favorite football coach is Tommy West. Tommy oh, West just had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, he was passionate about what he did. We had a great deal of success. He revived the program the first time we went to the first bowl in over 30 years. Yep. When we went to the new Orleans bowl, he had D'Angelo Williams and he was just a funny, interesting guy. So I, I don't think uh, – and, and, again, I love Chuck Stobart, and I love Charlie Bailey. And, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, I like uh, Justin Fuente quite a bit. And Mike Lovell might have been the best coach of all of them. But my favorites are Tommy West, and I love Josh Paxton. And I love Larry Finch. But my two favorites would be Calipari and Tommy West. What are your thoughts on uh, Hardaway right now? We finished up year two. What you, I think Hardaway is going to be a great coach. He's he's so personable. He cares. Uh, people don't realize how much basketball he knows. He'll right. develop even better as a coach. Oh, definitely. Sky's the limit for him. 
What do you feel like you have left to accomplish on your bucket list that's left? My bucket list will include doing the games until I die, if they'll let me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and then doing a lot of traveling. Lord, Lord help us. We all get through this coronavirus. Ain't that the truth? Uh, at, the, at the moment that is going to change us for the next two or three months for sure. But my, my goal is to, uh, I do a three hour daily radio show that I cut down uh, or maybe retire from in the next couple of years. And my wife and I do a lot of traveling and I still do the games. And, and really, uh, that would keep me contented for the rest of my life. Before, oh, I forgot. A couple more things, actually. Sorry. The tennis deal. How did you get that? Because I know we talked about tennis from time to time, and I know. Yeah, that- uh, the the, uh, the tennis deal started uh, really. Um, I want to say when we were doing the Tiger Games in that package, we did a, a, a tennis match. Right. Maybe maybe a, a, a live tennis match on Channel Twenty Four, the ABC at the time, mm-hmm. and um, that mushroomed into the cable company doing a mm-hmm. bunch of sporting events in Memphis, which. I ended up doing most of those really? and uh, we started doing the tennis tournament. I think we did 16 or 17 years of that tennis tournament on the local. Uh, so, so time Warner at the time, and now it's Comcast mm-hmm. had their own allocated sp- station where they just did sports. Right. And I did, I don't know how many events on there. Uh, we did a lot of sporting events. It was fun, but the big one was tennis. So we would start Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We did all the quarterfinals on Friday. Right. And then the pros would come in and do uh, the semis and the finals on Saturday and Sunday. But we, we, we did a lot of tennis for 16 or 17 years. That was fantastic. And you and your lovely bride just did the African safari trip. We did last summer. Out. Yeah. What was that, that was like? fantastic. Oh, it was incredible. The safaris were amazing. Victoria Falls was terrific. That is a once in a lifetime kind of thing you got to do. I wouldn't mind doing it again. And, and, and we were in Africa. We went to Zimbabwe, Zambia. Uh, oh, my. And, uh, and spent some time in Victoria Falls. But um, next time we probably do it in South Africa. I'd love to see Cape Town. I didn't get to see Cape Town, but I was in Johannesburg. But, uh, you know, the, the, that is what awaits if everybody, if the world stays the same and, and uh, the stock market doesn't bankrupt me. Is that is that what is that is that next on your traveling itinerary or do you have another? No, no, I've got I got coming up. I've not been to Australia or New Zealand. I haven't been to Costa Rica. Uh, there's a lot of places that I've been to. I, the combination of uh, Vietnam, Thailand, and Cambodia. I'd like to see those. There's there's a lot of places I've still got to see before I go back to Africa. And I know you've been to Hawaii more than once with the team. And I know you, I don't know if you've taken. Well, I think we've got that trip. There's one in the Bahamas this next year, back to Atlantis. But I think in the next couple of years, we will go back to Maui. And I really look forward to that. That, that might be my favorite place on earth. What is that? What is that experience like when you last, like, what are those experiences like for those off land kind of islandy tournaments? that you and the team will go on, or if you can't go, somebody else throws in for you. Well, they're terrific. I mean, there's basically you're in paradise and you're watching college basketball. You can't get much of a better combination than that. And uh, in particular, Maui, all the teams in Maui, except for Chaminade, the host, mm-hmm. are usually top 25, top 30 programs. So you're sitting in a gym if you want to, 
you're watching incredible basketball and that you know they're doing it in the morning because it's so far behind the eastern time zone about five and hours then, and then in the afternoon you can go explore maui which is incredible from mountain views to snorkeling to everything in between i mean it's an incredible adventure and then atlantis is actually very nice too it's got its own water park and there's golf there's a million things you can do the 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 best combination of these great basketball tournaments in paradise uh whoever invented them i love it and i don't know have you gone to the cancun challenge yet i'm sorry say that again the cancun challenge we've not we have not done cancun yet no from what i've heard from a lot of the broadcasters that got a chance to go in there they say it's fantastic because they do a lot of their games in a hotel ballroom well that's the way it works in atlantis as well you're you're basically in a casino ballroom really yeah how do how do they fit all the how do they fit all those teams in there i mean do do they have like assigned seating or is it how does it usually work for those terms you know what you buy a ticket i'm I'm not sure if it's assigned seating or not there's not that many you know the the ballroom's only going to fit about three thousand people or so they put they literally put in a ballroom a basketball floor and they construct seating around it. And there's not a bad seat in the house. And, uh, you know, uh, it works. And what was the Canadian basketball tour like when y'all went down there in Canada? Uh, you know what? Um, I, I was not on any of the, the Canadian tours. I don't think ah, you know, okay. that was anything. So it's a little like the Bahamas last year where people in Memphis got really excited because Memphis beat the heck out of these guys from the Hamas. But half of them were waiters and, and busboys, for goodness sake. I don't think it was really good competition. You played one good game against the Bahamian national team. Other than that, there was not a lot of comp. So what's the basketball schedule looking like for 2020, 2021? Well, you know, it really won't officially come out until September. But right. yeah, there is there is a matchup in Atlantis uh, the uh, week of Thanksgiving. and. Um, the ever-dreaded crossover. I know we play Tennessee and Nashville on a neutral floor. I believe there is um, – trying to remember who else we might play. Those, those, are the, those are the two games that stick out right now. I, I, I know there's a couple more, but they're not coming to my mind. Is Gonzaga on the schedule? No, not that okay. I know of. I'd love to get Gonzaga back on the schedule. Well, last question. What was it like going into – the kennel at the McCarthy Athletic Center with all those Zag fans and in probably a, probably one of the most quaintest locations in the U.S. What was it? Well, like there's two locations in, in Spokane that you can play. And by the way, I love going to Spokane. It's, it's a beautiful place. The hotel that we stay at, the Davenport, is I, I think one of the top 10 hotels in America that I've seen anyway. Sweet. And um, we played the first couple of times we played because John Calipari refused to play in the kennel. We played in their civic center, which actually holds more people. Right. And we won both those games there. And then um, with Josh Pastner, he agreed to finally play in the kennel. And that was one heck of an experience because it's, it's I guess, seven or 8,000, but they're on top of you. And it's loud, and they're mean. And we, we, we gave a battle, but they, they came out ahead. And that and that was probably Passer's best team when it was I think Joe Jackson on that squad, right? A few other guys. I think I don't know if you had all four Kings, but you had Joe Jackson and Chris yep. Crawford. Yep. And um, 
trying to remember the uh wasn't wasn't cd no cdr was on the Derek Rose no, no, show. that's the two that's with, that's the 2008 team and that that team that was the great team that had Derek rose it had antonio anderson it had cdr it had Joey and, Dozier. and it had robert dozier those were your starters you had andre allen coming off the bench what was it like in that in that year for the sweet 16 when you played ucla and then finally getting by them to get somewhere you haven't gotten to in so long, and then you no, no, that 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 Sweet Sixteen was probably the greatest weekend, uh, maybe any team ever had because you had to go to Texas. You were in what is now Energy Stadium. It used to be Reliant. It was in the football stadium where the mm-hmm. Houston Texans play. Yep. And uh, we had to play the first day against Michigan State. They were the champions of the Big Ten. They had the Player yep. of the Year, uh, the guard whose name escapes me, and Kaywin Lucas. Uh, no, that, that was not his name, but, uh, the, uh, Antonio Anderson just shut him down. They got, he could, he couldn't score. Memphis actually led in the first, I don't know, fifth, you know, 10 minutes or so they were up by 30. It was over. They were up by 30 in the first 10 minutes. Then the next day, uh, or or the next game on that Sunday, you played Texas in Houston and, and Memphis just knocked the heck out of them. Then in the final four game, they beat UCLA. And then, of course, the uh, – The uh, the infamous fatal, dreaded missed foul shot game. The fatal game where they should have fouled and they let, uh, uh, they let Mario Chalmers hit that three and they blew a nine-point lead with 2.12 to go. And let's, not, and let's not forget, if we make half of our foul shots, we're not even talking about That's right. that game getting there. No, you're right. You're right. If they'd fouled, if they'd called uh, actually on an inbounds play, uh, UCLA actually stepped over the line. They didn't see it. it there, there was, it was the perfect storm against us, unfortunately. And I, I, uh, I hate to end on that note, but we must. Oh, no, that's fine. Hopefully we can do this again and have more fun with this. Hopefully. You got it was it. a blast, man. My pleasure. Let's, Take do care, it again. Let's do it again soon. You got it.